internet brand strategist Sandra Beck interviews top business coaches, speakers, authors, and thought leaders to bring you the best business tips, tricks, and techniques to give your idea the best possible chance for success. From writing your first novel, to telecommuting from home, to taking your small business to infinity and beyond. Now here's your host, Sandra Beck. Hey everybody, this is Sandra Beck and I'm so excited today because I'm visiting today with Keith Marin and he is a transformational coach. He knows a lot about transformation. We're going to talk about the nature of transformation today. And for those of you that are listening on your computer while you're working, go to leadership-pathways.com leadership-pathways.com and check out Keith Marin because he's got a lot of neat things on there and it's a great resource so that you can understand who he is and why he's here. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. It's so nice to talk to you about transformation because it's one of those words that we see everywhere. We see it, oh, weight loss transformation. Hey, buy my new product and transform, transform, transform. But what does it really mean to transform? And when we transform, do we lose a part of ourselves, or are we just enhancing the good things that we have? What Uh, do you think? Great question. Just on the topic of the transformations everywhere, I I saw this... uh, Uh, TV advertisement on San Jose University. And they said the noted for being the most transformative university in the country. And I'm thinking, when did that become something that we measure? How do you know that they're the most transformational? But it's it's obviously a very uh, appealing term to a large extent because a lot of people seek to grow, develop, and transform and so one of the things we have to you know, ask and answer is what's the difference between just natural growth, evolutionary growth, and a transformation? Or and learning and a transformation. You know, we exactly. know better, we do better. All transformations are growth, but not all growth is a transformation. So at least in my mind. So if you just look at the word transform, and someday I want to look at the Latin root of all this, but... It's, it's a shift in a form of some kind. Okay. It begs the question, what form? Okay. But very simply, when we transform some aspect of our life, let's say I transform my relationship to food or the way in which I eat, or I transform the way in which I relate to my, my partner, my friend, my lover. Mm-hmm. Um, the form I'm referring to when I think about transformation as a paradigm, meaning in embedded in all aspects of our lives, what drives us to do what we do are paradigms that exist within us. I'll define that in a little bit. But a transformation is a shift in one's paradigm. The okay. fundamental way in which they approach something, not a, a, a slice of a change, not a little bit of a change, but a fundamental shift in the way in which we approach X, whatever it is that we're wanting to grow in. That would be a transformation. Gotcha. So while you were talking, I looked up the Latin <laughs> because okay. that's what I do. We're not going to leave any stone unturned here. And it talks about change in shape to metamorphosis from the word trans, which means across or beyond and form to form. So we're going beyond the form. We're going beyond the paradigm. So go that's ahead me. and define paradigm for me because I have an idea of what paradigms are, but I'd like to hear what you have to say. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the essence of the word paradigm, it comes from a, a Greek paradigma, and it has something to do with a model or a pattern. Paradigma, I think, is the word for pattern in Greek or something like that. It has to do with a pattern. So patterns exist all over the place. When we think about cultural paradigms, for example, a particular culture might have a paradigm. So in our country, we're guided by or ostensibly by freedom. Right. And freedom is an overarching uh, framework for understanding the Constitution and understanding why we set up the government the way we did. So that's a pattern in a culture. In terms of human being, a paradigm or a personal paradigm would be a, a pattern by which we operate in a particular realm. And that pattern 
would have our thoughts, our beliefs, our assumptions, our needs, our goals, all of which shape our strategy or strategies. Our strategy shapes our actions and our actions create our outcomes. So the totality of all that, thoughts, assumptions, beliefs, needs, strategies, actions, outcomes, represents a pattern that we keep repeating over and over again until we decide we need to shift that pattern. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I have a pattern. Um, well, this is one that's really uh, close to home for me. Um, I used to love sugar. Mm-hmm. And whenever I, uh, I used to love chocolate and sugar and I would eat a lot of it and it would affect my health, yep. uh, among other things. And my health is eroding and I decide I want to change my eating pattern. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not so easy to do that because what causes the pattern in the first place are multiple factors. There's the environment within which I grew up. There's the constant um, advertisements all over that keep reminding us to eat all these good things. There's the reason why I'm attracted to sugar in the first place, psychologically or emotionally, as well as in terms of taste. And there's just the very fact that it's a habit that's very hard to break. Keith, I just want to stop you for a second to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor has been with us for almost two years now. And we love them. They are Best Fiends. And Best Fiends is a super fun digital game I play it all the time. And, you know, Keith, one of the things that I'm looking forward to as we're getting back to normal is I get to fly back home and see my family. I grew up in a small lake outside of Buffalo, New York. And to go home and be around my friends and enjoy that lifestyle is really exciting for me. But getting there is kind of a pain. There's no direct flight. There's lots of driving. There's lots of sitting and waiting. And that's where I whip out my best fiends. And you know, when you download Best Fiends, you're going to love the game. You're going to love the music. It's cute. The characters are fun. It's challenging, but not frustrating. And after I play a few rounds, I find myself starting to relax. I find myself feeling like I'm back home. And that's a really great thing given, you know, I'm sitting in traffic, flying on a plane, taking a train. And once I start playing Best Fiends, I don't want to stop. And, you know, I'm at level 290 right now. And there are thousands thousands of fun puzzles to solve. And there's something new every day. And it's way more fun than the other matching puzzle games out there. And one of the things that I really enjoyed was um, recently they were having this like little promotion game thing that that was just so much fun. And I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed, um, you know, just being part of something. And I'm starting to get a relationship with these games. And I'm just about to come on this hazardous hurdle. And it's funny because I can feel my adrenaline kind of ramp up like, you know, I'm all right, I'm going to get this. And they did this Fiend Dependence Day, like Independence, Fiend Dependence Day. It was super cute. I had so much fun. I came in number six, and that really pleased me. And it was just fun to be part of something, and it got into the holiday spirit. And I really love the detail that they put in here. They have like a Statue of Liberty, you know, like fiend character, like a a fiend of liberty. And she's got, you know, her things she's holding up, you know, her torch. And it's just really fun. There's lots of cute little things in there that just make it really a pleasurable experience. So download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store, and it's also on Google Play. So download it today free at the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. You're going to love it. You're going to enjoy all of these little characters and all the little doodads that they add in there that make me giggle. So we're talking today about transformational leadership with Kevin Marin and how things shape us and how patterns come from shapes and how we can we can reshape those into something that works better for us. And so all of those factors shape the pattern. If I want to transform that pattern, I can't just say, okay, I'm going to stop eating sugar. Right. Because those forces are very powerful. I need to examine what's in my mindset, what's in my thinking, what's in my feeling state, what strategies do I employ What's the effect of all that on my choices and how do I shift those things so that my choices show up differently? That's why in most cases, diets don't work. 
because you're not shifting the paradigm that creates the pattern in the first place. And that's why it's fascinating to look at paradigms, to go deeper, to understand why we do what we do in any given thing. Well, yeah. And, you know, when I think of the word paradigm, I think of kind of it's an accepted way of me doing something that I don't really think about. And so you can't just stop it. You know, it's something like you said, it, it could be from your family of origin. It could be from your belief system. It could be your routine. It could be your habit. It could be all these things. But at its most simple, shifting a paradigm is shifting something that you just kind of accept as is. You don't really think about it. That's why I think a paradigm is so much bigger than people think about because it contains beliefs. It become it contains practices. It contains how you think about yourself. There's some sort of physiology, some reward, pleasure, pain reward that we get in. There's a whole bucket of things. But at, at its very root, a paradigm is something that we shift and it's usually something that we haven't really even thought about. Oftentimes that's the case. Anything that we do habitually, which is most of what we do, yeah. um, it kind of goes into the background of our awareness as to why we do what we do. We just do it and we repeat and repeat and it becomes comfortable like an old coat that we're wearing. It's comfortable. It fits me. Uh, or a chair that you sit in and it, it's got, you know, it's got the perfect contours for you. And every time you sit in it, you go, ah, and then you just have no awareness of the contours. It just right. fits. So therefore changing a pattern like eating or like exercising or like how I lead an organization, how I relate to my husband and wife or girlfriend or boyfriend, all of those things that we might want to change in our lives and often say we wished we could change it, it requires some pretty deep exploration to truly change them. Right, because I think the word change is, is part of it, but transformation gets to the whole of it. And when we transform, you know, like we can make changes and there can be a rebound effect and there can be, you know, kind of the ripple effect or the butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it by making a change. But when you transform, you change a whole system. That's, That's why true. I like the word transform for system changes. Like if I'm going to transform my office, it means I'm going to rip it down to the studs and which I've recently done and rebuilt it. I put a U-shaped desk in here. I put, you know, all sorts of different things in there, but it required me to analyze my workflow, my work processes, you know, the, the things that I do in my business have changed over the past 10 years. How I do them has changed. So I can't just make one or two changes. I needed to transform the, the whole bat cave. And everything needed to be pulled down to the studs and looked at. Mm -hmm. Why am I working? I don't do a lot of programming anymore, Keith. So why am I working on three monitors? I have this huge bank of monitors that all it did was act like a, like a, a toaster oven. <laughs> <laughs> and so looking at my office and look at my practices go, and why do I need all the books that I've interviewed for guests over the past 15 years. So I called the VA, they picked them all up, but it wasn't just one change. One change, we got another change and we kept getting down to the root of things. And yeah, my office is still a disaster. You can see it. We're still in the process of, you know, re of transforming it into a space that works for me now that reflects my beliefs, my choices, the things I want to focus on. Because if we stay in the same state, it's really hard to change other aspects of our life. Yeah. You know, another way of thinking about this is that a paradigm is like a, a cord or a knot that has many, many different um, threads to it. Mm -hmm. And you take one thread out, the knot still remains. Yep. You take, and especially if it's a tight knot. It's really hard to even to take one thread out, but the knot is still present and active. You've got to identify the multiple strains, the multiple threads that are creating this knot and, and unravel them little by little. This is partly why I, 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 I'm troubled with the idea of 
so many people want transformation in a bottle. They want trans, right. instant transformation. Um, the weight loss industry is, is legendary for sure. promising, take this pill or follow this practice and you will change your, change your life. And while that might be true for five or 10% of the people that are ready and everything else is lined up to support it, so many people do the diet for two, three, four months, and then they just bounce back. I'm not a diet expert. I don't want to imply that you yeah. should be on a diet or I should be on a diet, but it's an interesting phenomenon how in our society, we have this high desire, please transform me and do it quickly. Well, that of very- course, why wouldn't it be? We have Twitter, instant <laughs> communication, social media. We have Amazon. What is that next day delivery? Pizza Hut, 30 minutes or less. You know, you go through the drive-through. If you have kids like I do, you, you know, you hit a few drive-throughs every month. And what is it? Oh, park over here, Miss Beck, and we'll get your food to you within three minutes. You know what? Right. I can handle five. I can handle seven. Like I can handle 10 if you cook my burger thoroughly. Like I don't need to have, but, but speed. And I think that's one of the things that, that COVID transformed a lot of people in their speed freakiness. You know, everything became faster is better. You know, and I saw this in my business, um, Keith, I, you know, I own a multimedia company and we produce 17 different podcasts for different advertisers, vendors, sponsors, and providers. And what happened during COVID is the demand went through the roof and they're like, okay, Ms. Beck, you're producing, you know, four to 15 shows a week. Now we need 30. Why do we need 30? You know, there's a million different vendors out there that compete for people's attention, right? Because that's the name of the game today is where do you get the attention? If Amazon gets the attention, you're scrolling through and buying their products. If Netflix gets your attention, you're, you're, you know, buying and upgrading your service. So your whole family can watch Netflix all at the same time, independently in their own rooms. Like some of this stuff is starting to get bonkers bananas. Oh, yeah. So when we look at transforming and we look at COVID, COVID plunked everybody back in their seats, stuck their families back together. You couldn't go out and get away from your wife and go to the gym. You know, you had to deal with some real um, issues. But when we talk about transformations, sometimes there's transformations we choose to do. Yeah. And other times there's transformations forced upon us. You talked about your sugar thing. You know, during COVID, I had 14 months of cancer treatments that caused a transformation of my body from sickness to health. Did I want all this junk in my body? No. Did the junk in my body mean I couldn't eat sugar and and bread and, you know, without blowing up like a Macy's Day balloon? You know, so these transformations were foisted upon me. They weren't my choice. And I want to talk about the difference of transformation that you choose versus transformation foisted upon you. Anybody who's ever been divorced by a spouse knows that transformation happens, whether you like it or not. Well, no doubt about it. And, uh, and our patterns, in, in effect, can be disrupted by other things bigger than ourselves. You know, the folks that that I think more likely thrive in life are the ones that go with it. They don't fight forces bigger than themselves. They go with it and they learn how to adapt and rejigger their lives. I had a recent situation where I, I uh, a bunch of money uh, was stolen from me. A what? A bunch of money. Oh, money. Which, I thought you said a bench. I'm like, couldn't you? No, a, bu- a, a bunch of, bench? Sorry, so a, a lot, lot of money. A lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. stolen from me. And I will not likely get it back, which caused me to rethink my whole life. My, am I going to retire? When do I, will I ever be able to retire again? When will I retire? What do I need to do about my work? Should I live where I'm living? It raises all kinds of oh, questions. Absolutely. So that's a that's a impact on me. And I think were I not adaptable and willing to go, you know, roll with the punches, I'd be an emotional wreck right now. Mm-hmm. 
And so lots of people who get rigid, they, they want things the way they want them. And, and they're, they, they, their identity is connected to those things. When the world shifts and changes, they become wrecks. Mm-hmm. If they're not able to go, okay, life just gave me lemons. Um, so I, I, think, I think adaptability is crucial. That's very different than the transformations that we choose. Right. Absolutely. Like, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I had a three month old and a uh, one and a half year old and a mortgage that could shake, you know, literally choke a horse. It's Southern California. They're bad down here. I'm sure they're just as bad as Northern California, but I wasn't in some little box like I where I'm from in Buffalo, you know, that I could manage a huge overhead. And my ex-husband gets up one morning and says, this isn't for him. Mm. And so talk about a transformation. And then when I started looking at our co-accounts and our company accounts, I see things are drained. And is it stealing when you take from your spouse? I think so. But a lot of people see it differently. But what that did was that transformed me into a person for a long time, Keith, that wasn't trusting that guarded my accounts. You know, you talk about money being stolen, you know, it could be stolen by a business partner. And the term stolen, like, do we want to do a legal definition? Does a husband steal from a spouse? Or if it's 50-50, in my book, if you took more than 50, (laughs) that's stealing. But, you know, we don't have a court of law to handle some of these things um, because it was during the time of the marriage. But when you have a violation, a trust violation or a values violation. I valued the money I worked for, Keith. I earned it. It was in my mind, my money, even though we were married, I was the primary breadwinner and right, wrong, hate me, love me. It was a violation of my trust, of my belief system, of what I thought was fair and equitable. So these things caused me to transform from somebody who was self identified Pollyanna-ish. I thought there's enough money for everybody. I still believe there is. And we don't have to take what's not ours. And that was a rude awakening for me. And so my subsequent business, Keith, that I built after that divorce is more bulletproof, if you can make a business bulletproof. And my contracts are more ironclad than probably would have been if that situation never happened to me. Did I transform, Keith? Have I transformed as a business person unintentionally after a divorce and a, and a liquidation of assets from companies? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Although I, I would quibble with one thing you said about yourself. Um, you said, this caused me to transform. Yes. And I don't agree. Okay. I would say this was the stimulus. The loss of money, the loss of husband, what was a stimulus that had that was impinging upon you, but what you did in response to it gotcha. was of your choosing, you caused your own transformation. Correct. Dealing with the stimulus. And and, and I say this because it's this is about personal power in a sense. When I assign the cause of my choices onto something outside myself, I literally disempower myself. Yes. In that moment. When I recognize, oh, this happened. Now what do I do? Whatever I say after that is my choice. Then in some sense, nothing causes us to transform. Absolutely. Other than ourselves. Right. It's a choice. I believe so. I think so. You know, and this no. is why I love shows like this because, you know, we get into the meat of real situations and my life's an open book and I don't care if anybody judges me or not. The fact is I'm learning. I'm learning from you and I will change my languaging because I believed I made the choice to get married. I made the choice to get divorced. So if these are my choices and I created this mess, because I believe I had a part in creating this messy life that that imploded. Now, was I responsible for all of it? No. Was I responsible for all of the actions? No, I take my fair share. But if you take responsibility for getting married in the first place, and you take responsibility for getting divorced, you're in the driver's seat. Absolutely. You know, there's just a little story that illustrates this that I that I often, often use. Um, and I'll use it now. 
So the, I don't know, whatever the, the, the earthquake 20 some odd years ago here in, in, in Northern California, I think it was 20 years ago or so. Was that one during the baseball game? Yeah, yeah. Maybe, not, maybe it was 30 years ago. Uh, no, it was another one more recently. Oh, okay. Maybe it was the baseball game. I don't, it doesn't matter. So you could see wreckages all around, you know, people's houses, some of them crumbled. And, and, and we're, we're so enamored on in the news with all the awful things that happen for people and, oh, woe is me. One, one interview on one of the TV shows, some channel was of, of a husband and wife who had a, a beautiful house that was built on a cliff Ooh. and the whole house fell to its demise. And you could imagine all of us going, oh, isn't that sad? And they talked about the victim. We're victims of this awful event and we're very, very sad. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you chose yes. to build a multi-million dollar house on a cliff in the worst earthquake area in the world. Right. And you're telling me you're a victim? Right. Right. And nobody's really a victim when they have like a, you know, $25 million house. That's like know, exactly. And insurance is going to cover. Victimized by the industry. And I'm like, okay, you make $120 million a year. I'm sure you can rebound. But you'll suffer. You'll, you'll yeah. make it through. So, so in some sense, is there ever a transformation that is caused or thrust on us? And th- that's the interesting question. Yes, of course, it's going to force us to change, but what we choose to change from it is all of our own doing. It's yes. all of ourselves. You get, you know, your husband or wife gets killed or you get raped, whatever. It, it, it just, whatever happens, yes, of course, there's a victim story in it. Of course, no one asks to be raped or murdered or whatever. Of course, that's, that's not, it happens. And of course, you didn't make it happen necessarily. I'm not implying that at all. But what I choose to do with it once it happens, it's all my own doing. Well, and that's the kind of the victim hero balance. You know, if somebody's victimized, we know there's a victimization that happens. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to become the victim. And people who rise above, at least in our culture, become the hero. Yeah. So you really have a choice. And it's funny you say that, like, you know, Keith... Shortly after I got divorced, don't ask me why I did this, but I did. I took my two little babies and I'm like, I am going to walk the rim of the Grand Canyon because I knew if I just look down in that deep pit and see the eons of, of, you know, eternity carved out of the earth, that somehow I would get it through my head that like, this isn't the end of the world. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trucking along and this bus pulls up and the little charter bus that goes around the park, they're like, no, you can't bring a double stroller on. So I'm like, screw this. Like I walk to that thing myself and I'm walking, walking, walking. Well, I get up to a, a part where there's a little overlook where I can park the stroller. We're completely safe. I'm not going to jump, but I sat down and was contemplating the universe And this bus pulls up behind me. And I kid you not, Bruce, or sorry, Keith, true story. All these women get off. It's a divorce bus. It's a bus trip for some church with divorced women. And I'm a horrible eavesdropper. It's probably why I got into radio so I could just listen to everybody talk. And these women sit on the bench behind me. I'm there with the stroller, just chilling. And they're talking about how angry they are at their spouses. Life has never been the same, blah, 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 blah. One of the ladies says to the other lady, how long have you been divorced? And she's like 25 years. And I got up with that stroller and I'm like, screw this. I am not going to be, you know, on this bus 25 years from now. I got two kids. I don't know how I'm going to make it work, but I will make it work. And I did. I pushed that damn stroller all the way back to the lodge. And, you know, it was a choice, but you could choose to be victimized 25 years later because you got a divorce yeah 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 so in some sense you know going back to the issue of transformation in some sense to transform myself consciously or unconsciously to transform um, let's explore what does that mean How, how do i as a human being 
uh, shift the pattern of my life in the area that I want to shift. Mm-hmm. That's been, by the way, my, my fascination for almost 40 years now. And although I've only written one book on the subject, it's called The Art of Transformational Coaching, um, I've been fascinated by transformation my whole adult life. I think partly to learn for myself, how do I grow and become the person I want to be? So, well, And why do some people transform themselves and others stay stuck? Yeah, boy, that's a really interesting, because that's a deeper pattern. Right. You're talking about resiliency. You're talking about um, self-awareness. Yeah. You know, I think when I look at the keys to success from what I can garner with 15 years of doing interviews on the air, um, one of the key things to any sort of transformation process is resiliency. I think that to me is at the core of so many things. And so is perseverance, like resiliency with perseverance. If you have those two characteristics, now how you get them is a different animal. That become, That's exactly what I was thinking of. Okay, so yes, it's true. The more resilient I am, the more I'm likely to be able to, to follow the journey of transformation and carry it through. But what causes one person to be resilient and another not? Well, some of that is, you know, the roots of our family and our environment, our psyche. Maybe we're born with it. Who knows? But resiliency and the capacity to to slog through the difficulty. Resiliency plus perseverance. Because, you know, before our show today, um, you know, and even though I couldn't remember in the beginning, you know, what our focus was, now it's coming back to me. I prepared a lot of going, okay. If transformation is the high, you know, like on the org chart, it's the high, then we have two legs that come off, we have perseverance and resiliency, then what goes into those things? And can you my question to you is, can now I'll give you my opinion after but can you become a resilient person? And can you become a person of perseverance? Can those be choices? Absolutely. I mean, if, if we follow my reasoning, what we choose to do in response to whatever is within our own power. It may be harder for some than others, for sure. But I can say, I tend to be stuck, whatever the opposite of resilience is. I tend to be um, uh, stuck in my ways. And I know I'm not very resilient. That's the pattern that you can transform and follow. There's a seven step process that I've I've, I've uh, divined in a sense for, for doing that transformation. I can, if I tend to lose persistence and give up quickly, I need, if I want to change that pattern of lack of persistence, then I treat that as a pattern and I go through the transformation of the pattern itself. Is it harder for some than others? Of course. Mm-hmm. It's going to be different for different people. It comes down to, this is where like, you know, when I was, was doing my little deep dive into this topic is mental, like your belief systems, your living, your limiting beliefs, your belief systems and your identity and your mental toughness, I would say, all of those come into identifying yourself as either resilient and persevering. And the reason I say this, Keith, is I worked a lot with the Marine Corps over the years. And I've watched these young kids come in and come out resilient. They've come out, you know, these were fragile, become resilient, you Mm -hmm. know, giving up or weak in my mind, become persevering. And, you know, you watch enough high school kids go in and you look at this, what I call a transformation. I'm not saying the Marine Corps is for everybody. I'm not saying, you know, screaming in your face is going to work in a business office. But one of the things that, that I learned early on was if you train yourself or your children in the belief that they are resilient, in the belief that they do have perseverance, one begets the other because which comes first, the chicken or the egg, the belief that you're resilient, or do you learn that you're resilient because of repeated efforts? Like this is that chicken and egg thing with resilience and perseverance. Both of them are beliefs. Yes. And you also learn by observing. So here's just a a little bit, you know, what your parents teach you overtly 
sure. would make a difference. If they're saying you are resilient, I believe in you, I believe you have capacity, nothing can stop you, whatever you want, you can have, you know, if you go after it with drive and determination, right. um, the sky's the limit. If you get all those messages, those messages do have an effect. But the greater effect is what your parents or people around you do. So it's not what we say, it's what we do as parents. And so if you have a mother or father who's highly resilient, when they, when they, when they get lemon, they, you know, they make lemonade. When they get a hard patch, they don't complain about it. They just problem solve it. When you have that kind of person and you're growing up, you observe it. And you see how they make it through and you go, I want to be like that. Or you see another parent suffering and drinking and complaining and, and, and uh, right, modeling the opposite, behavior. modeling the opposite. And they say, don't be like me. Yeah. Be different. But they see you. So just a little interesting piece of information about this that I, I found, find very fascinating. Our brain waves um, can be measured. And I think they use Hertz is as a measure. Yeah, megahertz, uh-huh. Brain, I don't know if it's megahertz. I think it's just hertz, but I'm not Heart sure. Pressure? Okay. But it's a way of measuring brainwave patterns. And when you're born and you're early on, your brainwave patterns are slow. Let's say 0.2 hertz. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It's hertz, HZ. And then when you, the, as you grow, the brainwave speeds up. Mm-hmm. Well, here's it, it, uh, through um, theta waves and then delta waves and then something else. I don't know. Uh, 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 so hypnotists mm-hmm. understand that when your brainwave pattern is at four to eight hertz, no, wait, uh, two to four hertz. I'm not exactly sure. Don't quote me on this. But a certain speed, when your brainwave is slowed down to that right. speed, to a certain speed, you're most impressionable. Right. You're, you're most subjective to their input. Exactly. And so um, they slow you down. Watch the watch. You're getting sleepier and sleepier until you reach a rough, slow state. Well, it turns out the same theta wave pattern that hypnotists put us in is roughly the, the wave pattern that we are from age two to six. Which, Which means from age two to six, you're looking around and watching and observing. Mm-hmm. And all of those inputs, you're completely open to being, imp- imp- you're impressionable. You don't think through, oh, do I really want to do it that way? No, you right. do it the way your mom or dad does it. And it gets imprinted in our brain and it conditions us. And then we repeat the pattern throughout adolescent and adulthood, never examining how it came in the first place. Gotcha. And so, so my point is that a lot of what we do is based on conditioning that got imprinted early, early on in life that we never had the capacity at that time to question. And so at some point when you're going, if you want to transform yourself, you literally have to transform your conditioning. Gotcha. It's deeply embedded in your wiring. In your wiring, you can do it, but it takes a bit of effort. It takes a fair bit of effort sure. to recondition oneself to a wholly new way of being. Do you know? Does so? Would that stand to reason that certain certain families would imprint, you know, brain patterns on their children? Why then is one kid super successful, one isn't? Well, there are a lot of factors. I mean, there's, there's, uh, I don't imagine that receptivity is absolutely the same for every child. Okay. You know, let's say one child is, well, there's, the, I'll say this differently. Every parent knows that every child they have is different. Right. And therefore they're operating each child with slightly different paradigms. They interpret the world slightly differently. And therefore, even if the parents are exactly the same, the interpretation of the child is going to be different. So you can imagine child A watches their parents do certain things. And for whatever reason, this child is docile and 
and uh, or have receptive. a different personality. Personality has something to do with it, right? And and they go, oh, I want to be loved by my mom and dad, and so I'm going to do it that way. The other child is not very receptive, and the parents know it right from the get go. Right, you can see the the child's more belligerent. They go through the terrible twos twice as hard as the other one does. The parents then react to that child differently. And the child has the other child, you know, the brother or sister has the other one in their environment. And the other one doesn't behave the same way as I do. And so what unfolds slowly but surely is a fundamental difference in interpretation, you know, which sets into motion a very different way of living. My, my father, this is a perfect example of this. My father was a um, one of uh, uh, identical twin. You know, an identical twin brother. They look alike. When they were early on, the parents dressed them alike. And for whatever reason, we don't know why, my father hated it. And his brother loved it. Yeah. Who was older? Moreover, I was curious. Who was, the huh? older, who was the older by minutes? I have no idea. I really don't know. Because I'm wondering, okay. just from raising boys who are close in age, you know, Irish twins, I'm like, wow, I bet the older one loves it. The younger one hated it. Like, just curious. Check that out. Like, I, have, I have no idea. So anyway, so moreover, because my father didn't like being a twin, he always kind of had a sour face on. Oh, if you look nice. at all the pictures, I always know which one is my dad. He's the one with the sour face. And because he so, felt that need to be identified separately, and the the other brother liked being part of it. For whatever reason, who knew? And that started really early on. Wow! So not only that, the brother is more friendly and generous than my father. My father's got the sour face. My brother's got the happy face. And guess who attracted more attention? Sure, the happy face. The happy face brother. Yeah. So my father resented his brother for grabbing all the attention, and thought he his brother was manipulative. And, and so the filters from which they were examining the world around them were very different right from the get-go, which means you, the parents are smiling more at the, at the brother. Yep. And my father made meaning out of that. And so is the environment the same for each child? No. Oh, you're right. It is not. No, it's very interesting you say that because, you know, as I was raising my kids, I had one primary caregiver, Anna, who's still with our family today. And Anna's like, she's been raising kids for, I don't know, 20 years before she came to me. And she taught my kids to clap and to wave. That was the first thing she did to teach them. And I said, why are you teaching them that versus like language or things? She said, training babies or raising babies for 20 years. She said, babies that can wave and smile and clap get more attention and they engage more with the world. I mean, this is somebody who just said it's simple child raising, you know, to get your kids a good start in the world, teach them to respond back, wave and clap. Who knew? That's right. That's right. So the environment is certainly of parents age two to six is certainly imprinting them. But there are other factors as well. There's no one-to-one correlation that says, you do this as a parent, you can guarantee this will happen for your child. What we do know, however, is that the child age two to six is looking around and watching and observing and taking it in. And, And it's imprinting. Well, and the child could very well, I look at my own kids, one could say, I would love to be like that. The other one says, I'm not going to do that in a million years to the same experience. So, right. you know, we also have, you know, the decision-making abilities and the, the how much does each person want to be involved in this. Now, when we get to be adults, Keith, and we, we start to examine some of these, you know, kind of early educational programming that we want to undo, do you find the same disparity, you know, in your, in your coaching practice, do like when somebody's uncoachable or they're not coachable, I'm like, sorry, thank you. Sayonara. Like, I can't work with you. I, I just can't, if you're not going to work with me, I can't work with you. Like it's that simple. Do you yeah. find that people are, when you dig back to those things, is it more a cognitive thing or an emotional thing that that leads the change? Gosh, I don't know. It's certainly both. I, I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to answer which is more. Um, our cognition affects our feelings more than the other way around. Okay, that's what I was asking. Um, I believe. Now, some people believe the opposite. 
Um, and, and the opposite could be true, but our cognition, how we think will affect how we feel, mm-hmm. how we interpret the event will, will affect what feelings emerge. And so I would say thought more than feeling, but feeling many people argue and rightly so that some of our feelings are deeply ingrained yep. and that are, that are, they're not, um, they're not thought based. There's something else. Like you can have an experience sometime in your childhood that traumatizes you. And I right, promise you, have you a have, you'll, emotion, right? you'll have no thought, but you'll that, have the emotion. Yeah. Right. That hamster wheel of thoughts versus emotions and, and, and where they all fit on the wheel, because you can have a thought that creates a feeling that triggers a deeper emotion that causes you to have different thoughts. And, you know, you literally could go round and round in this. Yeah. And I'm not sure the impetus of the original question, but it, it maybe has to basically do- trying to say, I was trying to ask in transformational coaching from your opinion in your practice and your experience, which is more effective working on the feelings that create the thoughts or working on the thoughts to then manage the feelings and the transformation process. I, I can answer that with confidence. Okay. It's gotta be both. And if I, as I coach somebody, I'm looking at their beliefs, their assumptions their orientation, their needs, their goals, all of which shape feeling states. The thoughts and feelings combined shape our strategies. Gotcha. Our strategies shape our, out- our actions, our actions shape our outcomes, and our outcomes reinforce their beliefs. Right. And so it's a cycle that gets repeated over and over again. And as long as that cycle remains you're going to continue the behavior that you do. And so I'm interested like that not analogy unraveling all of those elements without care, which is more important than the other. In fact, it's going to be different with different people. Sure. For example, some people are very much governed by their feelings and they're, they're in their body more. And then there's some people that are extremely cognitive. And so for the cognitive folks, I help them think it through. For the feeling folks, I help them feel it through. But of course, with both of those folks, I have them look at their thoughts and their feelings and their relationship between the two. So I don't think that I don't think it almost matters much. You've got to examine thoughts, feelings and behavior. Right. And their inner relationship. And they all form the pattern itself. Yeah. So how can people find your book for people who are interested in what you're doing? Because I read a lot of coaching books, even though I'm not necessarily a coach, because I like to know like the other side, I like to know the why. And so how can people find your book? Well, um, Amazon.com, uh, uh, The Art of Transformational Coaching. And if you look up Keith Marin, um, you'll find a bunch of books that I've written. And, um, you know, the book is aimed for coaches to help coaches help others transform, but it's chock filled with insight about the process of transformation. But I actually had this thought yesterday. I started to have this thought. I've been leading these workshops for coaches for uh, three years now, Mm -hmm. based on the book and what I think the book is teaching us about the nature of coaching. And then I had the sudden realization I could be doing workshops for people to help them through their own transformation and have these coaches that I'm training work with these people following this seven step model, which I'm, I haven't named in our interview here, but following a seven step model of transformation, I could just be helping people of all kinds learn how to transform themselves. (laughs) Well, Because it's up to us essentially to do the work. Like you can guide, you can teach us a coach can help you along your way and maybe get you to the end result faster or you know, point out where you're not doing something correctly, or maybe give best practices. But ultimately, isn't it? (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. Isn't it up to me? Yeah. Yeah. A coach is a guide, the coach isn't going to do it for you. But anyway, so you you know, it circles back to that opening conversation that we had, which was, how fast can I get it? How fast can I transform? Can you give me a pill or a, a program? That will yeah. transform me tomorrow. Well, so the, the part of the steps, um, if I can name them briefly, the first step is identify the problem. The second step is have a transformational goal. The third step is examine the paradigm, examine the paradigm that created sure. the pattern in the first place. 
Because if you created it, you can uncreate it. If you get it, if you get that you created it consciously or or unconsciously, you you were conditioned, but you were a participant unconsciously in the conditioning. Right. If that's true, you can be a participant in your own unconditioning. So the fourth step is literally owning, owning your paradigm. I created this consciously or unconsciously. Once I own that I created it, I can now create a new. And now I go on a journey of exploration. What would the new paradigm look like? I'm exploring. I then choose and then I form a habit, a new habit. That's the arc. And it requires ownership along the way. Anything well, good does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So the art of transformation, Keith Marin. You guys, Marin is spelled M-E-R-R-O-N. Keith Marin, M-E-R-R-O-N, the art of transformation. Check him out. Go ahead and get a copy of his book. I'm a big proponent of buying Coach the Coach's book because I like to see what I can do. And then when I go to coach, with someone to help me improve, I have an idea of what's going on. And I have a really good idea of what I want from that coach, because there's nothing worse than don't go into a coach and go, I don't know, I just need help to me. I don't like that feeling. I like to have a little skin in the game. So the um, website is leadership-pathways.com. And um, the art of transformation, what was the title again? The title of the book is The Art of Transformational Coaching. And you can also go right to artoftransformationalcoaching.com. Excellent. Excellent. If you're interested specifically in the coaching element. Perfect. Perfect. You guys take it either way. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. On behalf of Sandra Beck, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on Coach.